Beloved, these are, uh, these are sobering days, sobering time. We, as the people of God, are engaged in a long war. This war had its origin in the garden, and it will find its conclusion when the final rebellion, the end of Messiah's kingdom, is crushed. And the eternal state is ushered in. Between those two events, we live in a state of war. We don't recognize that most of the time, but it's the reality. We are at war. Our enemy is the devil, Satan. And his demons, his fallen angels. And he and they stand behind every false religion, every ungodly philosophy, every corrupt and brutal political system, energizing motivating, directing, guiding, deceiving, propagating the long war against God. We in our own nation can observe the battlefields. Today on this Sunday, as we talk about the sanctity of life, one is certainly reminded of that. The destruction of the innocent can only come by the energizing deception of the evil one. That doesn't mean that everybody who is involved certainly knowingly or willingly is in league with the devil. I'm not saying that. But I'm telling you that a political system that thinks it's a virtue to slaughter the young is in no way aligned with the kingdom of God. We are in a war. And the greatest battlefield of that war has been Satan's repeated attempts to destroy the Messiah or to prevent him from accomplishing his great work of redemption and the reconciliation of this creation back to God. The war stretches all the way back to the beginning. Let me briefly trace it for you. Starting in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12. You can turn there if you'd like. We encounter Cain. You remember him. First son of Adam and Eve. The one according to Genesis 4 and verse 1 in whom Eve places her hope. This one, is this the one who will crush the serpent's head? 
how disappointing, how tragic, how terrifying. That no, he is not the one to crush the serpent's head. In fact, he is the one to slay his own brother. John says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12 that we are not to be as Cain who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. He was of the evil one and slew his own brother. Fratricide, the first murder. Brother against brother. Setting up there in Genesis the the battle lines that continue even to this day. We have the line of Cain and the line of Seth. The collision of those and and the the merging of those lines in Genesis chapter 6 is what brought about the great deluge. The sons of man and the daughters of God. We can fast forward to Exodus chapter 1 and verse 22 in this long war. Where Pharaoh, king of Egypt, sets about to destroy every male child. The offspring of Jacob. And Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who was born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. You are to destroy the male children of Israel. Satan behind him, energizing him, seeking to destroy Messiah before he's even born. Snuff out his line, make it impossible for him to come and to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3. We fast forward further into the time of the kings, 2 Kings chapter 11. And we are introduced to Athaliah, the witch queen, daughter of Jezebel, who slew her own grandchildren in an attempt to destroy the house of David, the line of Messiah. Verse 11 of 2 Kings, or excuse me, verse 1, chapter 11 of 2 Kings. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom, and they hid him from Athaliah, and he was not put to death. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord six years while Athaliah was reigning over the land. Don't miss the point. It is the evil one working in, through, energizing, deceiving, motivating her as she sought to put to death the house of David. We can fast forward even further into the book of Esther. Chapter 3. 
And we are introduced to Haman, the Agagite, descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites, the wicked and bitter enemies of Israel, who sought to put to death the Jewish people. Esther chapter 3 and verse 6. But he, that is Haman, disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, that is Xerxes, as he is known to secular historians. Through the demonically inspired plot of Haman, they sought to put to death the Jewish people and with them to extinguish Messiah. But God, in his providence and the sleeplessness of a king, delivered his people. We fast forward again into the New Testament to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16. And there we are introduced to Herod the Great, the wicked king, the Edomite. The brutal, paranoid ruler of Israel. Who sought to put to death every male child in Bethlehem and its surrounding area. Two years old and younger. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. He sought to kill the Messiah. But God intervened in a dream to Joseph. Get up and flee. Take your wife and your son and flee to Egypt. And Messiah was rescued. Further in Matthew, we encounter the evil one himself in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There, Satan himself pulled out all his stops in a full frontal assault on Messiah, seeking to discredit and destroy him and to remove his ability to stand in for his people as the righteous one. But Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, withstood the tests that his people had failed. And thus proved himself to be the Savior of the world. We encounter the phenomenon of demon possession in the New Testament. Has it ever occurred to you, as you read the New Testament, of how it appears that there is demonic activity going on all over the place? And it seems to be, at least at some level, kind of common. That is, that the, that the common people know what it is. This person has a demon. And when we look around, we don't see that. 
And beloved, I would suggest to you that there is no other period in the history of the world in which you see that. Why? Because as Jesus was was coming of age to, to, to proceed into his public ministry, whereby he would would stand in for his people, Satan pulled out all stops. All the fury of the evil one was was thrown against Christ. And so you see this unprecedented demonic activity, the kind of last-ditch battle you would expect to see. If you read the New Testament, what you find is that demonic activity actually following the resurrection of Christ in the early years of the apostles begins to diminish until you arrive at the later epistles and there is, there's actually little spoken of other than that the, the Satan is a roaring lion uh, prowling around and seeking whom he might devour and there it is the devouring that comes through the false teachers. We see nowhere near the kind of demonic possession, the, the, the kind of demonic activity. And so we don't find in the epistles any, any kind of instruction on how do you determine whether someone's demon-possessed or, or how do you go about uh, uh, performing an exorcism or casting out demons and all the rest of that. There is nothing. There is, not a, there is not a word of instruction on any of that. Why? Because it already had begun to fade. Now, it will be revived again, according to 2 Thessalonians, and I'll turn you there, like bookends. 2 Thessalonians chapter 8, or yeah, chapter 2, if you think there's an 8th chapter in 2 Thessalonians, I just said that to see if you were awake. A few of you caught it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and beginning in verse 8. I want you to catch this. These are bookends. Now, pick it up in 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. And bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. With all power and signs and false wonders. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Because they did not receive the love of the truth. So as to be saved. There will be an unprecedented outpouring of demonic activity. Again at the end of the age. Before the coming of Messiah. Like bookends around his first coming and his second coming. There is, a, there is an outburst of demonic activity in the long war. Of course, in Jesus' own day, according to John chapter 8, we're startled to read, or at least we should be startled to read, about the the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leadership of the nation of Israel, 
Those who most and best knew the law, those who were charged with upholding the law and teaching the law to the people. And yet Jesus says to them, verse 42 of John chapter 8, And Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Answer, it is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What an indictment. The very leadership of the nation. Those who were to be the priests of God, a a holy nation, set apart to to bring the good news of God to the world that is in desperate need to hear it, are in league with the evil one. And then Matthew 26, which is our text for this morning, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. The one who betrayed the Messiah. As we look here at Matthew 26, verses 1 to 16, and we're not going to make it all today. There is a dark and devilish drama that plays out. This dark and devilish drama has three movements, three scenes, if you like. It is through the outworking of this dark and devilish drama that the light of the world is betrayed into the hands of wicked men. Judas lies at the center of all of this. He who walked with Jesus, he who ministered for Jesus, He who ate with Jesus. My friend has lifted his heel against me. Beloved, I don't know if you've ever felt the pain of betrayal. But there could be no greater pain of betrayal than Jesus felt with the betrayal of Judas. This dark and devilish drama, as I say, plays out in three scenes or three movements. The first in verses 1 through 5, I'm calling Israel's diabolical plot. Israel's diabolical plot. Next week, 
In verses 6 through 13, we'll see Jesus' stinging rebuke, followed in verses 14 through 16 by Judas' damnable betrayal. That's your outline. Now, it's been a long time since we've been in Matthew, hasn't it? It's been a number of months. And then before that, we were locked in the, uh, the Olivet Discourse for months before that. And so perhaps we have lost sight of the book itself. And I don't want to spend the entire amount of time that I have available to me reviewing the book, although I certainly could do that. And so uh, we're going to call an audible here on the fly, Mr. Media Man. And we're going to skip over a whole bunch of slides. If you uh, get my notes, you have it. But basically, let me say this, just setting a context here. The book of Matthew is, is a structured not in chronological fashion as you and I understand chronologies. First this, then this, then this, then this, time being the governing factor. The book of Matthew is set together thematically. It is put together thematically in order to to answer the question of how could it be that Israel could refuse her king? Behold, your king comes to you, the prophet said, and yet she received him not. And so the book is arranged in such a way that, that establishes Jesus' qualifications as Messiah. We receive major blocks of teaching from the Messiah. His miracles are pulled together in chapters 8 and 9, brought out of chronological order to be brought together in a series of seven miracles there to demonstrate that he is indeed Messiah and, uh, and bears all the supernatural qualifications of Messiah. His preaching ministry, 18-month preaching ministry in Galilee, is detailed for us in chapters 10 and 11. And then we arrive at the fulcrum of the book in chapter 12, where, in light of the unimpeachable evidence of his life, his miracles, and his ministry, there the nation of Israel, instead, at the instigation of their leadership, attribute the miraculous power of the Messiah, the glimpse of the age to come, to the evil one himself saying that he is empowered by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. And there they commit what Jesus calls the unforgivable sin. They have turned into full and total apostasy. There is no return. There is no forgiveness. Quickly, Jesus then speaks The parables of the kingdom in chapter 13, he begins to speak about a new time, a new age that that had been unforeseen and could not be revealed until the apostasy had occurred. And he speaks to the days to come in these parables of the kingdom. Following that, for the final six months of Jesus' life, he he is repeatedly on the move, as it were, with his 12 disciples trying to prepare them for his coming death so that this messianic operation is not going to collapse in the tragedy of his betrayal and crucifixion. He's much to teach them. And so he moves from here and there and everywhere, trying to be alone, and constantly the crowds are pressing him, and and his heart is filled with compassion, and he turns and he ministers to them, but he desperately wants to be alone.
He turns to Jerusalem. He makes the trek down to Jerusalem. He enters, he crosses the Jordan River with the pilgrims. He comes up through Jericho and up the backside of the Mount of Olivets. And there he spends the night in Bethany with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Following that, he he makes his repeated and daily trips into the city of Jerusalem. And there in the temple, he confronts the leadership of the nation. And he presents himself one final time in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount, at the very center of Judaism, that he is the one and he bests his enemies in public debate one after another until he silences them all and they have nothing more to say. Tuesday afternoon, he leaves the temple. His disciples looking back on the Temple Mount and observing how big and beautiful and wonderful it is, he makes that terrible prediction of the destruction of the city and he launches into the Olivet Discourse where he he speaks about the terrors that will come upon the nation of Israel in in the times of the tribulation to come. He finishes his teaching there in chapter 25 and verse 46, and then the text turns. Three more chapters. Matthew gives us the final couple of days of the life of Christ. His death, his burial, his resurrection, and his commission of his followers to take the message of the gospel to the end of the earth. We are here in chapter 26 and verse 1. Israel's diabolical plot. It begins here in verses 1 and 2 with what I call Jesus' prophetic prediction. When Jesus had finished all these words, there's your connecting phrase. He said to his disciples, he's alone now with his disciples. He said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Jesus has repeatedly throughout the final weeks of his public ministry been very forthcoming about the reality that he is going to die and he is going to rise again. Repeatedly, he tells his disciples, and repeatedly, they refuse to hear. Peter, in Matthew chapter 16, actually rebukes him. Do you remember? And Jesus identifies where that rebuke, the, the, uh, the, where that rebuke re- originates in the mind of Satan and the plan of Satan to oppose the work of Messiah, and he rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. As Jesus continues to tell them, I am going to die, he, he adds more detail. He, he, and, but through it all, he continues to talk about his betrayal. He'll be delivered into the hands of men. He then adds that it will be the leadership of the nation that will kill him. He says that I will be crucified. And he continues to say, and I will rise again on the third day. And yet the disciples will not hear it. They cannot hear it. Their hearts and minds are blinded. But here he tells them again. He reminds them that things are going to change for them very dramatically. After two days. After two days. The beginning of Jesus' 
public ministry, remember John the Baptist pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. He identifies him as the Passover lamb. John chapter 1, verse 29. And for the next three plus years, Jesus travels about both in Judea and then extensively in Galilee and Judea again, preaching and teaching and stirring up the leadership of the nation who become increasingly hardened in their hostility to him. And what happens is there begins to be plots formed to do him in. Attempts to kill him. We're reminded, and again, I'm not turning there, you can turn on your own, but we're reminded, and I believe it's in Luke 4, where there at Nazareth they seek to throw him off the cliff. In the text, in a very understated way, says he passed through the midst of them. A number of times, they seek to kill him, and yet they fail. And beloved, they had to fail. They had to fail. Because Jesus came to die to be sure, but it was not according to anyone else's timetable. It was according to his own. He said, right, no man takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down I have the authority to take it up again. There is a timetable here. And the timetable is that Jesus will die in Jerusalem on the Passover as the fulfillment. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But now the time is right. But now the time is right. Passover is two days off. Jesus has accomplished his mission, according to John chapter 14 and verse 4. He says, I have fulfilled, Father, what I have been sent to do. Say one thing. That is to die and rise again. And provide the means by which those who have, by faith, embraced him and his message will be granted access into the coming kingdom. He is the narrow way. He is the narrow gate. But that kingdom is thrown open only by his death, burial, and resurrection. And the time has come. Notice he says, for the Son of Man to be handed over for crucifixion. Handed over, the Greek word, strongly implies betrayal. It is time for him to be betrayed, to be handed over. Now, it's fascinating here because without the betrayal of Judas, Jesus' prophetic prediction will not come true. He says, two days I will die, two days for the crucifixion, two days for the Passover to come. And yet, according to verses 3 and 5, there is no way for them to get him. There is no way for them to arrest him. There is no way for the prediction to come true. Unless Judas betrays him. Judas, the one who Jesus identifies in John chapter 6. And verse 70.
where he says, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, where Peter says, This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. In The sovereign, providential plan of God, Jesus must go to the cross as the fulfillment of the Passover, as the final sacrifice of the Passover. And yet it cannot happen except through the betrayal of Judas, according to the predetermined plan of God. Beloved, don't ever mistake the reality of Jesus' humanity here. Don't ever separate him from his emotions here. Don't ever think that just because it was the predetermined plan of God for Jesus to be betrayed by Judas and to go to his death, that somehow he he just looked it square in the eye and without any pain of betrayal or, or emotion just said, oh, that's God's plan, let's go. He lived with this man. He ministered with this man. He was a friend with this man. And this man betrayed him. God accomplishes good. He brings good out of evil. Why? Because he is sovereign over all. I finished reading Genesis this morning and was reminded once again where Joseph's brothers come to him, right? And, they, and, they, and they're afraid he's going to take vengeance upon them. And he says to them, listen, you meant it for evil. You did wickedness to me. And yet God meant it for good to deliver a people. I praise God that he works all things together for good. For those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. But that does not mean that all things are good. There is no greater wickedness in the universe than the betrayal of the Son of Man. And yet out of that wickedness comes about the greatest good and glory. That is the reconciliation of the creation back to its God. Oh, praise God. He is so powerful, so sovereign, so merciful, so gracious and kind. Jesus' prophetic prediction, Jesus' popular protection, verses 3 to 5. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Thus you see the tension. They want to kill him. But they, their hands are tied. We cannot do it now. We cannot do it when the city is, is overflowing with, with hundreds of thousands of pilgrims and worshipers. Who are hanging on every word. Of the prophet from Galilee. And yet Jesus must die in two days on the Passover. 
You get a glimpse into the power of God here, I think. With Jesus predicting his death at the same time evil men are plotting how to bring it about. Right? They've got a massive problem here. We cannot do it now. Not during the festival, verse 5. Otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Jesus is still popular. His popularity is waning, actually, by this time. Although the leadership does not yet know it. When he leaves the temple on Tuesday afternoon, we enter into what I believe is a silent Wednesday, when he sends the, basically sends the nation home to think about what he has said. He has finished castigating the Pharisees and, and basically saying that they are in league with the devil and that the religion of the, of the Pharisees, which is the popular religion of Israel, is a religion of external righteousness in which is no righteousness at all. And he calls the people to choose them or me. But right now, as far as the leadership is concerned, he is still being protected by the people. Listen, everybody enjoys a good fight. When I was a kid going to school, I went to a typical public school as a kid, and, you know, there'd be a a playground squabble every now and again. Fight, someone would say. And quickly, what happens? A crowd gathers, right? You know, big crowd around the fight, and, you know, get them, get them, you know. Everybody loves a fight. Unless you're in it. (laughs) Same thing was happening on Monday and Tuesday on the Temple Mount. The crowds would gather. They they were hanging on every word that Jesus said. He was was wildly popular with them. Why? Well, because he was like, he's giving it to them. Yeah, let them have it. Listen, the Sadducees who controlled the Temple Mount were corrupt to the core. They were ripping the people off. They'd been ripping the people off for generations. They knew they were being ripped off. They didn't like being ripped off, but they they were powerless to do anything about it. And here is this this prophet from Galilee who's getting right in their faces and, and telling them like it is. They like that. And then the Pharisees, they, you know, wheeled out the theologians, the big guns. And he shut their mouths. Turned over the tables of the money changers. Drove out the merchants. They liked it. Every night he would retreat out of the city, back up the Mount of Olives to Bethany, just over the crest of the hill. There he would reside with Lazarus under the protection of the hospitality of his host, that ensured his survival day after day until the time to die. Until the time to die. But here are the leadership of the nation here in verses 3 and following. They're frustrated. They're frustrated. They want to kill him. They desperately want to kill him. But he's just out of their reach. But they're here gathered, it says, verse 3, chief priests and elders of the people, the Sanhedrin, the leadership of the nation, political, religious leadership of the nation, they're gathered together in the court of the high priest, plotting, plotting, as to how they might seize Jesus by stealth, Notice verse 4, and kill him. Not how they're going to to arrest him and try him. 
how they're going to seize him and kill him. There's no need for a trial. Bring the guilty party in and execute him. By the way, John chapter 11 just reinforces this reality. John 11, beginning in verse 54. Actually, verse 53, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. This is right after the resurrection of Lazarus, which occurs just a couple of weeks before this final Passion Week. Verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to a country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. It's a small city, just about, I think it's about 30 miles, basically north, a little bit east of Jerusalem. And there he hid out until he could link up with the Passover pilgrims coming down from Galilee and enter in. Remember when Jesus says to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves? This is what he means. This is what he meant by that. This is an illustration of this. Jesus recognized that as long as he remained in the company of the worshiping pilgrims, the travelers from Galilee, in which he had spent 18 uh, long months doing all kinds of miracles. In fact, he had banished disease from Galilee for about 18 months. He is wildly popular, at least at a superficial level. And so by accompanying the Galileans, these are his own people, as it were, down into the lion's den, into the devil's lair, into the spider's nest, he can be safe. They won't kill him. They can't kill him. Because there'll be a cr- the, the crowds will riot. And if the crowds riot, the Romans will come. And they will take away. Their position of leadership, the, the, the Sadducees, that is. They will depose them. And so their hands are tied. Now notice we're introduced here to the court of the high priest, Caiaphas. Caiaphas. He is the official leader of this murderous group, this murderous band. He is the son-in-law of Annas. According to John 18 and verse 13, Annas is the real power behind the high priesthood. It is the family of Annas that has dominated and controlled the high priesthood of Israel. Annas himself was appointed high priest in AD 6 by Quirinius, the governor of Syria. You remember Quirinius, you're introduced to him in Luke chapter 2 and verse 2, right? Because it is by order decree of Caesar Augustus that everyone has to go to the home of their, to be registered, right? Of where their family originated and therefore Joseph and Mary must go to Bethlehem. It occurs in the reign of Quirinius, we're told by Luke. By the way, just editorially here, uh, this is one thing about the scriptures that just, I think is so, um, so significant. And that is the Bible intersects history all over the place. It is not a collection of, of religious sayings. It is, a, it is a reporting of historical realities. Jesus Christ lived, died, rose again. That is a historical reality. He lives forevermore. And it is a verifiable historical reality. And so the Bible writers are not in the slightest bit embarrassed to lodge their narrative into the secular histories. Because why? Well, because it's true. 
It's true. It's not a collection of some kind of religious fables. And so we have Annas appointed, 86, by Quirinius. Later, AD 15, he is deposed by Valerius Gratus, the governor of Judea, prior to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea at the time of the crucifixion of Christ. Now, after Annas was deposed, his sons, he had five of them, and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, held the office of the high priest. This was a family enterprise because they were making a killing in the temple vending machines. Caiaphas himself served from AD 18 to 36. Why? Well, because in the words of one author, Caiaphas was a sufficiently submissive instrument of Roman tyranny. How's that for a epitaph? Listen, by this time, the Romans controlled the high priesthood. It was the Roman overlords who determined who would be high priest. They would appoint them. They would depose them. The high priesthood, they could rip off the people as long as they didn't make too much trouble for Rome. If they got too independent-minded against their overlords, boom, the high priesthood was gone. They would pick another one. And so we have Caiaphas. It is Caiaphas, we're told in John 11, who inadvertently prophesied that Jesus needs to die on behalf of the nation. Do you remember that? We're told explicitly, because he is high priest that year, the Spirit of God uses this wicked man to prophesy the death of Christ on behalf of the nation. But in the mind of Caiaphas, the idea is, let's just kill this pesky guy, and that'll save the nation. He spoke way better than he knew. It is Caiaphas who who oversees and conducts the illegal nighttime trial of Jesus, the sham trial. So they can get him on the cross before the city wakes up. The Talbot speaks about the house of Annas, and thus by extension Caiaphas. It refers to the special sin of the house of Annas. They are charged with whispering. They're charged with the sin of whispering or hissing like vipers. As best that historians can tell, it it seems to refer to a private influence that the house of Annas maintained over the Sanhedrin. A whispering campaign. Basically the idea being that they, they would undermine the other members of the ruling council to get them to do what they wanted them to do. To bring about the outcomes that they wanted brought about. They were able to pervert justice, according to one writer, and silence all dissent. For example, you remember Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel? He tries to speak out on behalf of Jesus in the Sanhedrin, remember, and saying that, that it doesn't condemn, the law doesn't condemn a man without giving him a hearing, and they basically silence him. Joseph of Arimathea, we're told, did not consent to the death of Jesus, and yet the Sanhedrin is able to steamroll these men. Caiaphas and Annas behind him is able to steamroll these men. And it's, it is not until following the death of Christ that these men find their voice of faith and they go to anoint the body of Christ and prove themselves to be his disciples. 
So here's the scene. Here's the scene. The religious, the political leadership of the nation of Israel, tasked by God to look for and proclaim the Messiah, are plotting to kill him. They're plotting to kill him. They are to be the ones to welcome him with open arms. And they're secretly plotting to kill him. I think it's a little wonder. It's a little wonder that Jesus, according to Luke 10, appoints 70 and sends them out two by two. They're out the the cities and villages of Judea, proclaiming him to be Messiah. A replacement Sanhedrin, if you like, to do what the real Sanhedrin are supposed to be doing. But can't and won't because of the darkness of their hearts. So here it is. Into this scene of frustration, impatience, scheming, plotting, we'll walk Judas Iscariot. And we'll say, how much will you give me to betray him into your hands? How much will you pay me to turn him over? Beloved, the leadership of a nation comes from God. It is God who raises governments. It is God who puts them down again. And the leadership of a nation is either a blessing on its people or a judgment. Nations get the leadership they deserve. They get what they deserve. Israel had grown complacent, smug, self-righteous, cruel, and uncaring. And it was embodied in their leadership. May God help us. Let's pray. Our Father, it's not from a position of moral superiority, righteous attainment, perfect life that we criticize the nation of Israel. It is the recognition that the wickedness there, the seed of it lies in every human heart. Our Father, we confess the blindness of our own hearts, our hostility to you, unless and until your Spirit opened our eyes and set us free. Now, Father, 
We think of our own nation. And here we are. Our sin piled to the heavens. And we can only call out for mercy. Oh Lord, help us. Do not give us what we deserve. Hold back your hand of judgment. Grant salvation to those in authority over us. Please allow us to live in peace. But Father, if our time has come, if the judgment will fall, strengthen us. Enable us to stand firm in the gap. Enable us, if necessary, to suffer for our faith. Let us not lose sight of who you are and how wickedness cannot derail you and your plan. O Lord, firmly fasten our hope on that reality. How we long for the return of Christ. And may you enable us to invest what time remains. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.